All right, well, I trust that at this point you have had a chance to read through the beginning of Luke chapter 7 and to kind of retell it and make sure you've got some of the some of the sequence of events locked into your minds there. I want to go through and just provide a little bit of background, biblical and historical background as to what's going on in this text so that we make sure we understand what Luke was saying with this text so that later in our conversation that you'll have there um, and we'll have here afterwards, um, we can come to a proper application based on what the text actually means to the best of our knowledge. So uh, we'll jump right in here. Luke is setting a pattern and kind of following this, this pattern in the last few chapters of preaching some, some truths and then following that with miracles kind of to back up those truths. So if you remember chapter 5, there was a paralytic guy that Jesus first says, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, oh, I don't know if you can do that. And he says, okay, man, rise, take up your bed and walk. So, okay, the truth of his words were proven powerful because he was actually able to do even these miracles that he said. Um, in chapter 6, when the disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath, Jesus makes this massive statement, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he kind of backs that up with a miracle in the synagogue on the Sabbath the next time um, with, or the next story there, with, when he heals the man with the withered hand. He says, stretch out your hand, and his hand was healed. Um, so again, a, a teaching and then backed up with power miracles. Um, the last time we looked at uh, chapter 6, which was a lengthy teaching, the Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on a Plain, um, and here we come to a couple miracles, maybe to kind of back up some of that teaching. So there's just a pattern here. We've seen Jesus so far heal uh, people with demon possession. We've seen him heal people with various diseases and sicknesses. Um, so leprosy, uh, fever, paralysis, all these different things. And in the next two sections here, uh, we look at Jesus as he does a couple of miracles that are death-defying. Okay, first he heals somebody who's almost dead, and then he heals somebody who's already dead. Uh, so first, just when Jesus heals the centurion's servant in verses 1 through 10. A centurion, if you don't know, is just a Roman officer who was overseeing 100, a century of soldiers. Okay, They would have probably been a wealthy individual, which explains why he was able to help build the synagogue, it says in verse 5. And it would have been a Gentile. That's important because this is the first miracle performed, at least in Luke, for the benefit of a Gentile, okay? I want you to remember that because I think that becomes important later. Um, I think it's it's worth noting that the elders of the Jews, they're, they come to Jesus and they're trying to convince Jesus to do this miracle because they say that this is a worthy man, if you see that in verse 4. Um, but when Jesus arrives, the centurion himself says the opposite. He says, I'm not worthy for you to have come into my house, for you to come in. And um, so the question, I think, is did Jesus perform the miracle because the man was worthy? Well, no. He performed it because of the faith that the man had in Jesus. Okay? Not because he was worthy, even though the people had said, well, he's, he's worthy for you to do this for him. Maybe he had good character. But Jesus performed it because of his faith. Well, what was the content of that faith? The content was the man believed that Jesus had authority over all things. You see in verses 7 and 8. Um, so, you know, he says, hey, I have, a sol I have authority to tell my soldiers what to do and to tell people what to do, and they do it. And so, Jesus, you can tell people and things, even sickness, what to do, and it will do it. I believe you have authority. That's my faith. And 
he demonstrated faith through his humility. I am undeserving to have you do this for me. You are able, but I, I don't know that I'm, I'm not willing for you, or I'm not, uh, I, I, I'm not um, do this, you to do this for me. Um, so the centurion man, Roman wealthy official, demonstrates great faith through belief in Jesus' authority and through his humility. And what a contrast that's been to what we see revealed in the Jews so far, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, who are struggling with the authority that Jesus is proclaiming of himself. And certainly the Pharisees are lacking the humility, and they think we are worthy um, when really they're not. And so that's the centurion, and Jesus publicly praises this man for his faith, and he honors the man request, man's request, and he says, hey, I haven't seen anything like this in all of Israel. And so that was a real um, stab in the back to uh, the, the Pharisees, especially, who are like the overseers of the faith of Israel. In the next section, verses 11 through 17, Jesus raises a widow's son. Um, just a note about a widow in that day. Uh, if, if your children died, well, if your husband died, which hers had, she's a widow, um, your children would protect you in the absence of the husband. And so this is a real tragedy because her only son um, had died after her husband had died. So this woman's in a very vulnerable spot. And, you know, you, you might hear from people, many people say the death of a, a child is, is the worst thing you can possibly endure. Um, but remember to add to her sorrow of just losing the, the son, now a man, um, she also was maybe even becoming afraid for the future protection that she might have. So this is a major, major issue. And this, this dead man was being carried out on a bier, which is not really a coffin. Some translations say that, but it's more of just the, the, um, the poles or the frame that a dead body would be carried on. A coffin can be carried on top of it or, um, or a wrapped body. Um, probably that man would have died uh, very recently, earlier in the day. The Jews like to get people buried very quickly. And um, once again here, there's a touch that happens which is really important because just like with the healing of the leper, Jesus keeps going around touching things. And, and Luke brings this out and it says that he, he touched it in verse 14. Um, he's touching unclean things. Okay. In this case, he's coming in, in contact with a dead person, which the law had said you were not supposed to do. So that, that was going to make you unclean. And, but once again, just like with the leper, Jesus isn't harmed by that uncleanness. He's not actually made unclean, but he actually heals those who he comes in contact with. So very interesting there. The touch of Jesus um, is significant. And to bring somebody back to life, um, that probably maybe in the story thus far, according to Luke, is probably the most significant miracle, um, obviously, that he's done yet. It's massive, right? Our fundamental enemy is death, and Jesus here is reversing death, which in the Jewish mind, first century, would have been almost unheard of, except something would have come to their minds. Other resurrections in the Old Testament, too, specifically, Elisha, when he took um, a, the, the Shunammite woman's son and raised him from the dead in 2 Kings. And then earlier than that, Elijah in 1 Kings, he raised, listen, a widow's son from the dead. That was the a widow at Zarephath. And I'll read from 
1 Kings 17, 23, because I think there's a direct connection here. Um, when, when Elijah had raised the, the Zarephath widow's son, it says, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother, delivered the now living child to his mother. And then look here in Luke uh, 7, verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Okay, so it's no wonder that when the people hear the miracle that Jesus does, their response is, verse 16, immediately tagging Jesus as a prophet. Because the only other time they'd heard prophet is when they had heard of Elijah and Elisha doing raising the dead in the Old Testament. Okay, that's why they kind of jumped to that conclusion. Something else just to point out in verse 13 is uh, just Luke's kind of passing reference to when, when the Lord saw her. Jesus refers to, I, I'm sorry, Luke, the writer, refers to Jesus as the Lord. Well, thus far in the Gospels, um, besides quoting other people, Luke himself has only referred to God the Father as Lord. But incidentally here, Luke, in his narration portion, calls Jesus the Lord. Okay? So... I would think when you're writing a biography of somebody, you usually just kind of use their name, but Luke knows his relationship with Jesus, and Jesus is his Lord, which means master, or somebody who has authority over you. And I just point it out because that's unique to Luke as a gospel writer, to personally refer to Jesus in that way in his gospel. So something um, that just kind of stands out to me. So the final story that we, that we looked at today was the messengers um, from John the Baptist and how God or Jesus kind of interacts with them starting in verse 18. Okay, so we go from the raising of the widow's son where they believe Jesus was a prophet and that God had visited them through this prophet. Um, now we get to John the Baptist who's currently in prison communicating with Jesus. And John is like asking through these people, are you, but are you the one who we've been waiting for. Are you the one? We know you're a great prophet. We know you've done great things. Are you the one? So John the Baptist seems to be having some sort of crisis of faith. Even John was doubting who Jesus was or is. Why do you suppose that is? Well, what was he questioning about Jesus' identity? What was not clear to him? I think maybe a few things were coming to his mind. First of all, Hey, I'm declaring you, but I'm in prison. Maybe he's aware that he was in a, just in a bad spot there in prison. Okay, um, or maybe he's thinking, Hey, why aren't the our religious leaders, the the Pharisees, the people who lead our religion, why aren't they following you, Jesus? And maybe he's even catching word that oh, they're actually making plots against him, maybe even to kill him. So this isn't lining up. Is is that the one we've been waiting for? Somebody that our religious leaders are gonna come up against? Maybe he's thinking to himself, why, Jesus, are you not overthrowing Rome? Right? That's what many of the Jews were hoping for in a Messiah. And John knew that there would, uh, yeah, John the Baptist knew that there would be judgment coming on, um, on Rome and on all who were not a part of the people of God. And so even back in chapter 3, we read in Luke 
John talking about the wrath that is to come. And even now, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John's probably thinking to himself, why, like, where is this judgment? Why isn't this happening? Right? And so the disciples of John kind of, um, they have reported to John what Jesus has been doing in prison. That's what's getting this response out of John. And notice it says um, in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to John. So what are these things, all these things that are causing John to ask these questions? Well, I wonder if one of these things, the most recent that Luke uses in his gospel, is that there was a healing to the benefit of the centurion, a Roman, not a, a Gentile, right? Not a Jew. Well, Jesus is supposed to take down Rome in judgment and wrath and rescue Israel, not help those who are fighting on Rome's side. So you can see maybe where some of John's confusion comes in. And whatever the reason exactly is, it's, it seems to be John thinks Jesus isn't really acting like the Messiah that, that John the Baptist, anyway, expected. So to answer John's question, Jesus doesn't specifically kind of verbally answer John. He just does a bunch of things in, in verse, um, oh gosh, what is it? Verse 21, he heals a bunch of people, does all these things. And he's basically doing all of the miracles that the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier had said that the Messiah would come and do, right? Jesus is answering all of these things. So he says, okay, look at all that I did. Now go tell John, hey, what you've seen, I, I, the blind have their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news being preached to them. Yes, I mean, he's, he's answering in his actions. He's not just a, um, a virtue signaler, but he's actually doing what the Messiah was supposed to do according to the Old Testament, okay? But still, in some ways, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't who the people expected him to be. That's what I really want um, us to get out of this section. I think what it's really kind of leaning towards is he wasn't who people expected him to be. Okay. The messengers go back, deliver this to John. Jesus starts speaking really highly of John. Um, again, John was a, Jesus was calling him a great person but Jesus is kind of saying, but he's not kind of who you would expect, this weird guy in the wilderness, right? So J Jesus says, John the Baptist, he's the greatest human ever. He, he understands God in a way that maybe no human ever has before. He has brought thousands of people to repentance and prepared them for the Christ. He was a great prophet, he, the greatest prophet. He was, he was you know, announcing the way of the Messiah to come, yet John himself didn't come as you might expect, as a king or uh, in, in royal garments or in a palace, but he came dressed in camel's hair in the wilderness. Not what you might expect for the forerunner of the Messiah. So I think Jesus is, is telling and showing the people, I am the Messiah, but I've come in an unexpected way, and I'm being announced by an unexpected person. And the people have a, a problem with that. Some of the people, namely the religious leaders, and so Jesus refers to them as children. Some people call this the parable of the brats in verse 32. The children are the people rejecting Jesus because he's not playing how they expect him to play. or He's not doing what they expect him to do. 
like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, hey, we played the flute and you didn't dance and we sang a dirge or we sang a funeral song and you didn't weep. You're not doing what we want you to be doing or what we think you ought to be doing. Jesus, we say jump and you're not jumping. It goes on, John was calling people to repent when they thought they had nothing wrong, nothing to repent of. And he was awed so much that people are like, hey, this guy's crazy. He's got a demon. But Jesus is like, I, it, it may look that way. He may not look like you would expect. The package that he's presenting isn't what you expect. But he's actually the greatest man ever born. He's not playing by the rules that you've set up, but he's the greatest man to his day ever. And then Jesus of himself, he says, I was... I was um, feasting with sinners and with tax collectors while you were expecting me to fast and to stay away from those people. And so you guys are like, well, this guy's just a drunk. He's just a partier party animal. But Jesus is saying of himself, it may look that way. That's what's being presented. That's what you expect that I would be a certain way, but I'm actually the chosen one. I am actually the Messiah. I'm the savior and the king. So, so both John and Jesus arrive in these unexpected packages. Jesus wasn't who they expected him to be or who they wanted him to be. Even John the Baptist, right, was struggling at the beginning of this section with this unexpected nature of Jesus and his, his messiahship. So Jesus isn't going to jump when we say jump. Jesus comes on the scene how he is determined to come on the scene. Yes, according to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, but not according to our way, how we determine. He's not our servant, but he is our Lord, like Luke has um, apparently realized that Jesus is his Lord. Now, that's a little bit hard to receive, but Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So we take Jesus as he is, not as we think he should be. And I wonder if, even in our day, Jesus isn't, what people expect that he should be. Our world, I think, wants God to be a certain way that sometimes Jesus doesn't operate inside of that box. And it will take wisdom and understanding that he is the Messiah and the Lord. And we have to look kind of underneath the surface into an unexpected way that he arrives into our lives. But I think there's, there's good news for us in this. Jesus says uh, back up in, in verse 28 um, that somebody that is in the kingdom of God, even the least in the kingdom of God, is greater than John. And just to shed a little bit of light on that, do you remember us talking early on about um, this great transition that's taking place in history right now? Jesus comes on the scene and he's bringing the kingdom of God to earth. There's a transition from one age to another. And John the Baptist is kind of the, the turning point in that transition. Jesus actually goes on to say at the end of uh, the Gospel of Luke, the law and the prophets one way were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So this is a new era that we're entering into. And it's an era where King Jesus has been clearly made known and he has done battle on the enemy. We now know this on this side of the cross. And he's calling subjects to himself and progressing towards a kingdom where life is lived as it was meant to be lived with Jesus as king ruling. 
and living now in that kingdom puts us in a greater position than John the Baptist was or everybody before him was. So we now post John and post cross have access to the kingdom of God through Jesus. Y'all, we know clearly who the Messiah is. It's been made clear to us through these testimonies of people like Luke. The Messiah is Jesus. We don't have to question like John did if he's the one. We can see the bigger picture. We've seen now what Jesus was accomplishing in his lowly coming, in his suffering servant-like attitude. But it was the, for the forgiveness of our sins. It was so that he could be the savior of the whole world, not just so that he could help Israel get out of their, um, out of, from under the thumb of the Romans. So we can now see all of that. And we have permanent access now. We understand these things to God through the blood of Jesus. I can talk to him anytime that I want to. So it's not just this kind of temporary, um, it's it, it, this, this just national salvation, like for the people of Israel, but it's an eternal salvation for all people that Jesus, Messiah, the King, the Savior was coming to accomplish. And in this new kind of relationship with God, we have been born of the Spirit. That's, that's how we're greater than those, the greatest who was born of woman, John. We are now born of the Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples, blessed, this is chapter 10 of Luke, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The Messiah the Savior King has been made clearly known to us and we may enter his kingdom through the cross and live in it through his spirit. We aren't the brats trying to tell the Messiah how to be the Messiah or what he should be doing. We've seen him. We understand. We've seen his work on our behalf. We acknowledge who he is, those of us who believe, and we submit our lives to him as Lord. We're the, the children of wisdom, like verse 35. And I think it's our, our very lives that prove the work that God accomplished in his magnificent wisdom. Wisdom is justified by all her children. So I hope those things kind of shed a little bit of light about what's going on, especially in that confusing portion of why are these things being said about John the Baptist. Um, so go ahead now and spend some time making some more observations about God and about humanity. And then you can go ahead and talk about how this passage could actually make a difference in our lives.